0: We want to welcome you to the Crossings Church. Uh, Happy Father's Day. Um, Just like Corey said today, we are excited that you guys are here. Um, And I know Father's Day is obviously a day in our culture that um, it's not really looked upon as a great day for a lot of people. And I'm not sure where you guys are at today. I'm not sure if when you think of Father's Day, uh, you feel some sort of sadness or some sort of frustration uh, or... Just neglect that has happened in your life. Uh, I don't know if also is, today is a day that you feel very grateful for for what you've been blessed with, or you or you have a sense of gratitude for what God has provided in your life, um, or maybe you're even somebody like me that is more indifferent on this day. That you have um, some some sense of sadness and frustration from the way that you were raised, but now I have an opportunity to be grateful for what I what I've been given, what God's blessed me with. I'm not necessarily sure where you guys are at today, but I know that God wants you here. And I know that God loves you. And uh, what I wanted to do today was to start off by taking communion because I believe on Father's Day, out of all days, when you think about the cross and you think about what Jesus was, was willing to do, you know, Jesus wasn't just willing to do what he did on the cross because he loved us, but Jesus was willing to do what he did on the cross because he loved his father. And I think sometimes we don't think about that when we think about, the, when we think about the crucifixion, that there was something in the love that God had for his son that he was willing to go to that extreme to show his love for us. And I think that's an important note to think about when we take communion because sometimes we just think of communion as this idea of, okay, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. But if we got to put ourselves in the heart and the position of Jesus, he must have felt an incredible amount of love to go to the extreme that he was willing to go for us. And I think if we, if we look at that in our lives and we look at this when we take communion and we look at the impact that Jesus had on the cross, that might compel us to do some of the same things in our life. If we can feel this tremendous amount of love, no matter the kind of Father's Days that we've had in the past, no matter where, where we feel on this day, but if we can feel the tremendous type of love that God has for us, it will compel us to do some crazy things. It compelled Jesus to die on the cross, and what could it do for us today and so what I want to do is to start off this day to start a father's day I want us to take communion and I want us to remember the sacrifice that Jesus was willing to make because of how much he did love us um, and I'm hoping that we can take that in a way to remember not just Jesus but just to remember that there is an, there is a Heavenly Father that loves us tremendously and when we love him the right way and we can see that God loves us the way that he always has and always will it will compel us to have lives and have generations that are completely different than anything we've ever seen and anything that we've ever tried to get away from in our upbringing. So I'm going to say a prayer. We're going to pass the baskets, and we're going to take communion, and then we're going to jump into the lesson today. Okay? Um, God, I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be loved by you. Uh, you know, like I said, on Father's Day, out of all days, it is, it is a hard day to think about— um, You know, male role models. You know, loving uh, other males. You know, and and other and other people. But God, I know that in heaven, you love us more than anything. You love Jesus more than anything, and it compelled Him to do something incredibly, incredibly sacrificial, but incredibly wild. To think that He was able to do that for us, God. And God, I want to thank you again for your Son. I want to thank you for sending Him down, but. God, I want to thank you for loving him so hard to the point that he was willing to do what he did so we could have an opportunity to know you the same way that he knows you. And so, God, I pray as we take communion we can remember that sacrifice and we can remember that we have the opportunity to know you just like he knows you, Lord. So thank you again for your son, thank you again for the cross, and thank you again for the people here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so... Unfortunately, every time I have to preach during a holiday, it's something that I don't want to talk about. (laughs) Um, I remember on Easter Sunday, I was talking about something. I don't remember what it was, but I remember saying, it's Easter, and I don't really want to talk about this. (laughs) And today is no different. On Father's Day, we're talking about persecution. I don't want to talk about that on Father's Day. You know, this is my day. I'm supposed to be able to enjoy it, relax, and not talk about hard topics. But yet, here I am, and here we are, and we're talking about persecution. Um, It's a topic we need to talk about. If you look in the church theme that we've been kind of going along with for the year, this To Be Continued, we've been looking at the book of Acts and connecting it to our lives and stories today. Um, that, the, that the book of Acts is, is historical in, in what it is and, and what it was in the first century for the early Christians. And it wasn't just meant to be looked at like a storybook or like it didn't really happen, but it happened in a way to pass on a legacy to what we have today. And as we look through it, we looked at some cool things that have happened in the book of Acts, but now we're getting to a crossroads where we're starting to see it connecting more to what's actually going on with us today. You see, the first couple chapters of the book of Acts, it's nice. It's it's kind of peaceful. It's kind of tranquil. You know, Jesus dies on the cross at the end of the Gospels. He comes back in Acts and he says, listen, like, here's what happened. I'm the real deal. Go make disciples. spread the word, let everybody know how much God loves them and how much I love them. And then you see these first couple chapters where they all start to come together and people start getting baptized and they live in harmony and they, they all have everything in common. They're selling their possessions and, and, and it's nice. But now we're kind of getting to a point where we're starting to see the reality of what happens whenever persecution hits, whenever the world doesn't like what they were doing. A lot of like what we see today in culture. People don't like what they see in culture today, and religion today. And so we need to talk about this principle because as you walk through this, we kind of see some back and forth happening because in Matthew 28, 18 and 19, we get this instruction. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All power in heaven and on earth is given to me, so go and make followers of all people in the world. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we get this instruction in Matthew 20. It says, But are called to go make disciples. Right? witnesses telling people, and we see it says, "But you will receive your Jerusalem throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." So we get two things here: one, we get that we're supposed to be talking about Jesus and creating disciples, but it's not limited to a location of where we are at and where we're comfortable. With. It's meant to be a world-changing religion happening at the very beginning of Acts, changing faith, not just some forth between Matthew and Acts. Again, that. That Jesus says, and all nations in Matthew ten, and all nations will hate you because you are my followers. But everyone who endures the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one town, flee to the next. It's, so it's funny because as you read through this, you're like, okay, like God says, go make disciples. Not liking this as much. Eh, this is still getting worse. That, but then He says, but you're going to do that all over the place. And you're like. Okay, like maybe, cool, like maybe I don't want to leave, maybe I don't want to go somewhere else, but like I get it, cool, cool. And then he goes on and says, and they're going to hate you. <laughs> and they you're like, okay, now I'm not cool with the message anymore, right? I'm not in cool with this instruction. And sure enough, what Jesus foretold in Matthew 10 that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. You see, persecution hit the early church pretty quick. Uh, they went a honeymoon phase where it was nice, and there's mass conversions. And they woke up, they we're just living in harmony as disciples, they did not like it. And what happens is is that the, the the early church in Jerusalem had to scatter to make discipleship happen, to make this message happen. Um, and I believe that it is probably a good thing that that happened because if that wouldn't have been the case, they sat there. But I think this persecution had to hit to get these people to move around and find people. But in the midst of that, that persecution never stopped. Because where this starts in Acts 8, over the next 250 years, there are hundreds and hundreds of incidents of people being arrested, people being beat, believed in, lynched, people, you know, that's where the word martyr comes from. And you hear that, and if you know Scripture, and and you know that people died for Jesus, you're like, yeah, that happened a lot back then. But... Persecution looks different today. Well, I kind of looked into this a little bit, and there are a lot of historians that believe that it is estimated that in the last 50 years, more Christians have died for their faith than in the first three centuries of our Christian faith. And when you think of that, you're like, no way. But the reality is we don't see that in America, because there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of lynching going on in America for Christianity. But just like these verses talked about, this isn't happening here in America. We live in a world that the Christian faith is prevalent, which also means we live in a world where other people are dying in other countries because of what we believe in. But we've kind of been stuck under this pocket of of America where we don't go to that extreme. We don't go to that level because... The government protects us to a certain extent, right? We have the freedom of speech. We're allowed to do certain things here we can get persecuted, but we can still stand up and be proud of what we stand up for. But that's not the case in every country. If, if some of us, the way that we choose to disciple, the way that we, we choose to live, the way that we choose to talk, if I talked the way that I'm talking right now from a stage in some other countries, I could be put to death like that. And not one person in that country would bat an eye about it. Not one government official would be like, that was wrong. We should appeal that. It's just how it's ran in other countries. And so we need to understand that even though we don't see it here in America, this is happening. But if you're following culture, you know it's starting to happen a little more, right? You're starting to see things happen a little bit more. And so what we need to talk about today is that we need to understand first and foremost that persecution isn't going anywhere. If, if you believe in the Christian faith, if you believe in God, if you believe that Jesus died for our sins, if you believe that there's a heaven and there's a hell, if you believe that you want to live by that, that people are going to oppose it. People are going to argue against it. And that persecution is not going to go away. And if that's true, then we need to learn today how to persist in those environments. We need to learn how to persist and persevere in those times if it's not going away. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today, is I have four points that I wanna kinda of run through today about how it is that we can persist and what things we need to keep on the backs of our minds as we look through our life and as we look through disciple making and as, I, as we look through what it looks like to have a relationship with God in a culture that's choosing to persecute us. And so the first thing that we need to talk about is my purpose Not where I am determines what I do. My purpose, not where I am, determines what I do. You see, they got scattered in Acts 8.4. It says, those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And I think that's a great place to start because the reality is, is I think, if we're really honest, a lot of us may not stand up for our faith in other countries the way that we stand up for it here in America. If if there was a if there was a sore to our, our back if there was if there was a you know an ultimatum stand up for, we may be silenced a little bit more. We we may we may backtrack a little bit more, we may not be as proactive or as vocal with what we believe. It's a lot easier to be a part of the Christian faith when you're in a part, when you're in an environment that feels safe, right? You know, and that's why we have so many churches in America where people can go to and feel like they can have a relationship with God because those are, those are meant to be safe places. But what happens when those safe places go away? What happens when we have to... The challenge that we... What happens when the disciples had to scatter? Despite what happened to their, their great Jerusalem and Acts and they had to scatter all over the place, you see very quickly that their purpose never changed. Their locations may have changed, but their purpose never did. Our story here at the church, you know, we're, we're a church planning church, which means that we believe that God wants us to scatter. We believe that we took those first verses today and we take those very literally, that we are not just meant to find people and create this home and make this home as big. You know, I don't and never have anybody leave this home, and it's they are. We need to go to the ends of the earth. We need to go to the Judeas and Samarias, and that we need to form people that are willing to leave their comfort zones to go to other Samarias and create environments of hope and, and safe places for Christians to have a home to be able to, to, to learn what a relationship with God could look like. And there's a lot of people here in this church that came on a plan. You know, this church wasn't, hasn't always been here. This church has only been here for about six or seven years now. Um, but this church started with about 30 people who chose to leave a home church. They chose to leave a comfortable church that had over 350 members at that time to come to a new place with zero members. <laughs> the 30 of us that were here were our members, you know. And it's a lot easier to be in the church whenever you can find a large amount of people that have similar interests and a large demographic of people that have the same age range as you. And it's, it's, it's easier to do that, to be honest. But it's not easier to start from scratch. And for you guys that came on this church plant, you know what I'm talking about. You know how hard it is to change our lives and to change everything that we've known and change the comfort level that we had to build something new. But it's no different than what the disciples had to do, yet they were forced to do it because of persecution. We choose to do it because we have the the freedom to. And it's important for us to remember that as a disciple, it shouldn't matter where we're located or what we are, but that we are called to be purposeful despite our location. And now it's not just a location in like the world, you know. It can also be our location as 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 we grow up. You know, as a, as a campus minister here at the Crossings Church, I spend a lot of time with college students. And it's easy to be a college kid that's on fire for God when you have a campus ministry that's, 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 that's bumping. You know, the, a campus ministry that's just got, you know, 20, 30 college kids the same age as you. And we're on, we're on campus and we're fired up and we're handing out invites and we're studying the Bible with people. And you have a support group. It's so easy to do that because you have people rallied around you but then we graduate and we go get a job and we're the only one there. It's not as easy. Or we have that fire on a college campus, but then we go home to our households and we're the only disciple there. It's not as easy. You see, and that's one of the things I get so frustrated with is when I watch college students be so on fire for God and, they, and they're like, I can do this, I can persist, I can, I can have this. And then... And then their location changes a little bit, whether it be a family or a job or or whatever. And then the persistence changes. And the complacency shows up. And the lifestyle changes. And my challenge to us today is, wherever that fire started for you guys, I encourage you to, to follow it, no matter where life takes you. If it's a job, if it's a family, if it's whatever, whatever you, wherever your faith started with God, and if you're looking for that today, this is where it starts, is here in this congregation. This is where it starts for you today to look at your life and say, you know what? Something can be different in my life. Something can be, something can be because we've all had that feeling, you know, if if you consider yourself a Christian in a relationship with God, you've had that feeling in life before. But what's changed? What's different now? Why is life so complacent now? Why is life so comfortable now? You see, the disciples understood that no matter where they were, they had to continue to have their purpose in front of their location. In Matthew 5.13, it says, You, beloved, are the salt of the earth, and you, beloved, are the light of the world. It doesn't say here that you will be the salt or that... You once were the light, it says you are. You are and you always will be. So no matter your guys' context, no matter where we're at, no matter where we are in life, if you consider yourself to be in a relationship with God, you are light where you're at, period. And are you persisting in that or have you let that light dim because of the circumstances of the persecution around you? Okay, So our purpose is not just where I am, but my purpose, not who I like, determines who I teach. My purpose, not who I like, determines who I teach at that one lunch table. If you sat at the same lunch table every day in high school, you were in a clique, all right? So whether you like it or not, if you sat at the same kids every single day, that was your group. Right. And and for a lot of us, me included, you know, when I was in high school, there were certain tables that I avoided. You know, there were certain kids that I didn't want anything to do with because either one, I thought that they were super weird, you know, or they were going to like attack me or they were going to come after me or two, I felt like. In my arrogance, as a high school kid, like, I had a status level, and if I associated with a certain group, my status level was going to go down. Or if somebody saw me associating with somebody else, they're going to be like, whoa, what was he doing at that table today? You know? And it, it would kind of go all over the place. And so I created a table of people that I liked. It was the likability factor, right? Who are the people I connect with? Well, I played baseball, so I hung out the baseball kids, right? Or I was in football season, I hung out the football kids, and we had the same kind of groups of people. And it's no different in the church because those things that we got so familiarized with whenever we were kids, or even, even as coworkers, right? I'm sure some of you guys have coworkers, you're like, I don't sit with them at lunchtime, right? Are, There's are certain coworkers that I don't associate with, that I don't want to talk to. Or when we're in class, we're like, there are certain classmates that I sit on the opposite side of the room. You know, it doesn't matter our context once again, but if we're not careful, it seeps into our purpose. Just like the disciples. Once they scattered, there were were people all over the place they didn't like. You know, I'm gonna start this off by talking about Samaria. Samaria was not liked, you know, by Christians. And and uh, Samaria was not liked by Christians, and Christians were not liked by Samaria. You know, this is a this is a town, this is a place that was not very known for its religious people. Uh, and, and time and time again, it was avoided, to be honest, by a lot of Christians that people did not want to be in Samaria because of the way that the people chose to act and live. But yet, when you're scattered because of persecutions, you kind of don't have a choice. You know, like, so we start seeing Christians show up in Samaria, whether they liked it or not, and they had a choice to make. And we see Philip start this in, in, in Acts 8, 6, it says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and proclaim the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. You see, I would be surprised if Philip would say, Oh, I I loved Samaria when I showed up. It was a great place to live. You know, I can't imagine that was Philip's mind whenever he chose to go into Samaria for the first time. But then also I'm sure he was very surprised to hear people say that they wanted to listen and they paid attention to what he said. Two surprising things that may have happened whenever he he ended up being in Samaria. But yet, Philip gives us a great example of it doesn't matter who we like. That should not dictate who we teach. Because God gave us the purpose, remember, to go to all nations, to go to everyone. Here again in John 4, 9. We see this. It says the Samaritan woman. See, there's something about Samaritans. Like they keep on throwing out in the Bible, right? It says the Samaritan woman taken aback asked, how come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? It says Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. If that doesn't give you any context of the likability between these two groups, you know, I don't know how else to get around this. But it shows once again that there's this idea that Samaritans... And Christians were not meant to clash. But yet you see it time and time again where there's interactions with disciples that choose to go and talk with Samaritans. So my challenge to you guys today, or a reflection question for you, is, is how well do you choose to preach and talk into the Samaritan world? Your coworkers, your classmates, your friends, your family members, you know, I've been guilty of this as well on a college campus. I don't know how many times I have walked at a college campus past a table and been like, "They're probably going to say no." <laughs> you know, like has anybody ever felt that feeling? Like you've been afraid to talk to someone because you know they're going to say no if you ask them about church, right? It's like they got the big old tattoos on and they got the, the the skull cap and they and they just they just don't look like a Christian, right? That's really what we're saying on the inside, right? You don't look like you're going to say yes. And so when we walk past those people, we get cordial and worldly, right? We're like, hey, so how's the weather today? You know, like, how's it it going? You know, or did you see what happened in the sports world today? Or you read the news, you know, and we don't talk about anything spiritual because we feel like we already know the answers to those questions. And can I encourage you in my own guilt in the same way, that it is not our place to predetermine where people are going to go when they die. But when you choose to not interact with somebody, you are trying to make that choice for them. When you walk past somebody that you have an opportunity to interact with, to give them something different, and you choose not to because you feel like they're going to say no, what you are really saying is, eh, you're probably going to hell anyway. We would never say that, right? But how are we getting them an opportunity to go to heaven? How is what we are doing giving them any opportunity to have a relationship with God? Our family members. You know, some of you guys in this room, just like me, I felt the same guilt. You have been a Christian for years. And you have still not asked your family members to come to church. You've still not asked your family members to have a deep conversation about what you believe. You've still not talked to them about what God has done in your life. And in my own guilt, what I am saying to my family members when I have those same (laughs) thoughts and feelings is, you know what, you're probably going to hell anyway. Because it's not worth the conversation because I don't feel like there's going to be a likability in what I do and what you do. And it's it's incredibly challenging to think like that. For Philip to be able to walk through Samaria and just ignore and say, you know what, I'm not even going to try to talk and send this message to you guys because you guys are probably all going to hell anyway. You know how incredibly selfish that would have been? But he does it anyway. One cool verse in Luke 10, 32 as a Levite who was on his way to assist in the temple also came and saw the victim lying there. He too kept his distance. Then a despised Samaritan journeyed by. When he saw the fellow, he felt compassion for him. You see, we have another Samaritan here, but he's not talked about the same way as the other Samaritans are talked about. There's something about this Samaritan that looks different than other Samaritans. That maybe there can be hope for Samaritans, right? And it's important for us to remember today that those people that we choose to walk by on a day-to-day basis or those family members that we choose to live with on a day-to-day basis or those students that we choose to ignore on a day-to-day basis, we have no idea what they could be capable of in God's kingdom. And the important thing to also remember in our relationship with God is that every single one of us was a Samaritan in some way. Every single one of us deserved to be looked past. For a lot of us, we were probably in a position in our lives that people would probably look at us and say, you know what, it ain't worth it because of what we got ourselves caught up in, in our sin, in our lives. And so, just like the disciples understood this idea of our purpose, guys, I challenge you guys to remember that your purpose does not dictate who you talk to. Your purpose should enable you to talk to everyone, no matter if there's a likability or not. Matthew 28, we talked about this at the very beginning, but let's hit it again. It says, Jesus says, All power in heaven and earth is given to me, so go and make followers of all people that you like. Doesn't say that, right? Wouldn't that have been nice, though? Right? It says all people in the world. It says everyone. It says every single person that we have an opportunity to. Thirdly, my purpose, not the culture, determines what I preach. Now, here's a big one, especially in America and what we're dealing with today. My purpose, not the culture, Determines what I preach. You see, this is true as I communicate with unbelievers, first and foremost. Because we live in a culture <clears throat> that wants to kind of silence us, I guess would be the best way to say it. Or keep quiet about the scripture. You can be a Christian, but just don't read what it says out loud. You know, like, you can be a Christian, but just like make sure your own views and opinions on what the Bible says are silenced. But we have to be especially we have to be especially vocal with the unbelievers. This is true that I communicate with unbelievers. We've got to give them hope and an opportunity. Look at Acts eight. We see we see this guy named Simon. We're going to walk through his story a little bit as before he was a Christian and after he was a Christian. In Acts 8, 9 through 13 it says now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all people in Samaria he boasted that he was someone great and that all the people both high and low gave them their attention and he exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ they were baptized both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. You see it could have been easy in this culture because everyone else was kind of following Simon for them to Kind of be like, "Eh, I don't want to. They're not really going to accept what I have to say. Like they already, they got their own little thing going on here. But it was so imperative for 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 Philip to be able to say what he needed to say to these unbelievers because it gave them an opportunity to see something different. Not only did it give the, the followers of Simon an opportunity to see something different, it gave the ringleader himself an opportunity to change his views. You know, it's cool to go to a college campus and, and, and reach students, but you know what's even cooler sometimes is to reach a professor, you know, to reach somebody that literally has influence on the students. How cool would it be if we, like, baptized the president? <laughs> you know, like, how cool would it be if we, if we, like, found some high-end authority figures and showed them something different? what kind of influence they could have, how far that could stretch. But that only happens when we choose to combat the unbelievers. When we go into the world of people who don't know God, or don't like God, or don't agree with God, and still say truth to them. You never know who you can connect with. And in this, in this instance, it was Simon. But just as this is true that we need to communicate with unbelievers... It's also true that we need to communicate with believers. Because Simon is now a Christian, and Simon now believes in God. But Simon was still doing some worldly Simon things in his time as a Christian, and the disciples chose to address it. And we pick this up in Acts 8.14. It says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. See, Samaria, like this is a big deal. Like, like, I don't know how much I can emphasize it. Like Samaria, like this is like, this is like groundbreaking news to disciples when they're like, well, Samaria is getting, you know, Samaria is getting Christians. It's, they sent some, like we need to go down there and see what's going on. You know, like we need to see what's happening here. It says, when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray in the, to the lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a harsh th- or such a thought in your heart for i see that you are full of bitterness and captive dissent now i read this i'm like there must have not been there should there there probably wasn't much time between acts 8:13 and acts 8:14 <laughs> you know like there probably wasn't like years of of gap between these two instances and, like, when I read this, I think about Simon. I'm like, man, they went harsh on him and he just became a Christian. Like, that's rough for him. They weren't really, really challenging on him. Like, they literally just told him that this dude was full of bitterness and captive to sin and that he needed to repent of this wickedness. I'm like, the dude just went underneath the water. Like, give him a break. <laughs> like, give him a little bit of time to figure this out. Like, let's, let's, let's spend some time on this. And then I, I think, you know. Any person in life, whether it be a child, whether it be a student, when they're young in age, do we not correct more when they're young? Are we not supposed to correct more when they're young? Even puppies, for example, right? You want, you want to correct behaviors when they're little, so when they're older, they're not a terror. You know, have you ever been to a house where the, the dogs just jump on you? You know, And you just get so frustrated because, like, why didn't you... Why haven't you been trained? You know, I, you know, or uh, you know, I think of adults the same way sometimes. You know, why are you such a terror? <laughs> like, why are you why are you so destructive with your life? You well, know, a lot of times let's look at the training, let's look at, let's look at the challenges, the challenges and the correcting that happened. But for me as a church leader, I struggle with this. Because I'm like, you know, if I go too hard at first. Maybe they'll leave the church. Maybe if, I, if, I, if I'm too challenging, they may not want this life. And the more you think about that as a disciple, it's so much more important to realize situations like Simon should be so applicable to how we create Christians and, and disciples today that it is important for us to go hard at the beginning. You know, here at the Crossings Church, we sit down and we and we grind through study after study and we and we look at scripture. And then even after somebody becomes a Christian, in this church, we don't say, all right, you're done. You're here. You're just like everybody else with the same maturity as everybody else. We continue that process and we look through more disciplined, you know, issues in the Bible, more different, more principles that we can kind of mature our faith with. And we talk and we have hard talks. And as a, as, a, as a leader of the church, I choose to challenge my other leaders to challenge our younger disciples and mature them. Say, you need to say the hard things to these young kids. You need to say the hard things to these young disciples because if you don't say them now, a couple of things will happen. Either one, they will think what they're doing is acceptable and pleasing to God and they'll continue the behavior. Or two, the hypocrisy will spread And you'll now have a church full of people that think it's completely acceptable to do what they're doing. Or three, it will be off-putting to the world because they'll see the changes in what people in the church are doing that nobody's doing in other churches. And so I think it is important for us to challenge people when they first come into the church, but that obviously it needs to go along with grace and love. Nobody just beats a puppy to beat a puppy, right? No, we love the puppy too, right? We pet the puppy. We let the puppy play with us. We, we encourage those kind of thing, same things. We do the same thing to a baby, right? When a toddler's running around, we don't just smack our kids all the time, right? And be like, get, your, get, get away from that socket and kick our kids and just, we just wait to, all right, let's kick them again, you know? Like we don't sit here and just beat on people when they're younger. We still love them. We still encourage them because we're happy that they're with us. And disciples should be no different. I think sometimes we coddle more than we correct And I think if we chose to look at the story with Simon, we could see very quickly, okay, there are some benefits to this. Because maybe, you know, have you ever tried to hold somebody's hand when they're running the opposite way? Isn't that so frustrating? Now, metaphorically, if you've ever been a disciple, have you ever tried to hold somebody into the church that really doesn't want to be here? Isn't that so taxing? And it's clear Because we don't see any other indication of Simon actually like changing his heart here. In fact, later down the road, Rome actually builds a statue of Simon and it says, To Simon the holy God. I don't think Simon changed his heart, you know, if, if, if a statue was built indicating that he was a holy God. And so for the disciples, I would I would assume that it was kind of more like a okay, at least he knows. He knows where he stands. He knows where we stand. We can put our efforts elsewhere. But we don't have to be be daunted by draining this out. And I think that's important for us to realize with believers that we've got to say those things. It is so frustrating right now in the churches of America that we don't have to just combat against other non-Christians about the Bible. But now we have to do it within our own churches. There are a lot of churches right now, even a lot of authors, Christian authors, that we've used their resources in our church as great examples that now have different stances on theological things that are just outright opposite to what the Bible says. Because what I believe is that the culture is forcing things down their throats in their churches and they're afraid to lose their jobs or they're afraid to lose their friendships or they're afraid to lose everything that they've built because they're not willing to take a stand for God. And it's so frustrating to watch us now not only have to fight the, per- the persecution outside of the church, but we have to do it within the church as well. But yet, the Bible calls us, and we see examples like Simon, that we have to continue to stand up for what's right. We have to continue to know our Bible. We have to continue to say the things that are hard to people outside of the church and inside of the church. And when you culminate all three of these points together, what you get at the end, number four is a product that how I execute my purpose may determine if others do. How I execute my purpose may determine if others do. You see, if if you don't get anything else from this lesson today, it's that nobody likes Samaria. You know, I've hit on that a lot, right? Um, but look at what it says here in Acts 8.25. Because, right, whenever, whenever, whenever Peter and John heard about all the stuff in Samaria that was going on, like, they, they, they rushed down there because they wanted to hear what was happening. There's no indication in Scripture that says that Peter and John stopped at all these Samaritan places on the way down to Samaria. They just went straight to Samaria. But listen to this. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. You see they went down there to check on Philip because he was doing some cool stuff and they're like, dude, what's going on down here? We hear about some stuff going on in Samaria. We see that there's some people changing down here. What's happening? And they watched how Philip executed his purpose. They watched what he did. They gained some momentum. They gained some encouragement. And on their way home, they chose to stop in some Samaritan villages. They chose to talk to some people that probably they didn't talk to on the way down. And so for you mature disciples in the room, I want you guys to know people are watching you. People are watching us. And how we execute our faith. And it's very it's very there's a very high chance that the next generation will repeat what this generation does. Very high chance. Yeah, I've been saying this the last couple of weeks, whenever I've been preaching, but I, I truly believe that the next hundred years of Christianity is highly, highly dependent on what we do as Christians today. How we execute our faith. Because in a hundred years, I know my name's not going to be remembered. I know I'm not going to be in any books. I know I'm not going to be on any statues. I know even in this church, there's probably not going to be anybody in a hundred years from now that knows my name. And for some people, they have an issue with that. They want to build a name for themselves in the church. They want there to be a statue or a a plaque with their white hair on the wall. I don't want that. You know, so when I die at church, like, I don't want to see no plaque from heaven looking down with my white hair and my, my, my glasses just being like Jacob Sitton was here and was a great pioneer of the Crossings Collinsville Church. I don't want that, man. Just forget me. <laughs> um, but what I don't want to be forgotten is what I executed in my faith that passed on to a, a new generation, to my daughters. Because I need to know that my daughters are going to execute their faith to their kids one day. And it's got to be a ripple effect, but it starts with our execution in our lives today. Because I don't think that my great grandkids will remember my name. But there's a very good chance that as a father and as a disciple, that if I can execute my faith the way that the Bible calls it to, that I don't need my grandkids, my great-great-grandkids, to know my name, but I can know there's a high chance that one day I'll see them in heaven. And it won't be because of anything that the culture did to them. It won't be because of the persecution that came against them. It'll be because... I made a choice to execute my faith the way that God called me to, and it became multi-generational. And to think if one man can try to make that commitment as a father, what kind of impact could this church have? If this church was a congregation of men and women, of kids, teenagers, college students, and we said, you know what? I want to execute my faith in a way that can be multi-generational. That the things that I struggled with growing up, the things that I had a hard time getting over, the things that the culture tried to force my face, the things that I was persecuted against in this world, I was able to persevere against. And my kids or my grandkids are products of that. Think how many churches could we build over the next few years? 15, 20 years. How many people could we reach in the Madison County area in the next 15, 20 years? It's amazing to think of that, right? But so many times we look at what could be, but we don't focus on what we need to be right now. And so my encouragement to you guys today is as you look through persecution in your life, I challenge you guys to live just like they did in Acts. I encourage you guys to choose to persevere in those times, to choose to look at your life and say, in the midst of the world, in the midst of the persecutions that we deal with as Christians, I will execute my faith in the way that I know is pleasing to God, and because of that, it will be multi-generational. And I don't know where you guys are at today, but I encourage you guys to pull out a communication card today, because in your guys' bulletins, this is an opportunity for you to look at how you can execute your faith. If you don't have a faith and you're visiting with us and you're like, you know, I don't know anything about God. I don't know where I should start. I don't know how to execute a faith that I don't even know about. Check that you like a personal Bible study. Check that you like to get in in the Word with somebody and figure out what kind of plans God has for you, to figure out what kind of father is so loved by his son that his son's willing to die. That's a crazy kind of love that a father must have for a son to make him want to do that. It's the kind of God that I want to follow. And so maybe you just need to know more about God and check that. If you want some more resources, you actually have a great opportunity coming up because we actually have this workshop coming up. Uh, It's called CMU in a couple weeks. And this is a great place for for kids and adults alike to be at. It's actually going to be hosted at our church out in O'Fallon, Missouri. But for you adults, it's only five bucks to be there. And we actually have somebody coming in named John Clayton. John Clayton is a guy that was an atheist. He was an atheist and he was a scientist and he became a Christian because he wanted to use his scientific evidences to disprove the Bible, to disprove God. And he couldn't, so he became a Christian instead. <laughs> you know, And he changed his life. And the dude has done so many great things for the church. And he's actually going to be presenting a lot of Christian evidences at this workshop where he can talk about these things that he's... Looked at and evaluated over the years, and all these different things. And he's got an incredible website that a lot of us use as resources to people who are sh- still trying to figure out does God exist? Is it real? Like, how can I believe this, right? And so, there's a great opportunity for you to be at that. Um, if it's just community, you know, maybe you have a relationship with God, but you don't really know how to execute it. You don't really know how to get in connection with people who are trying to do that, too. Maybe check you want to know more about our small groups and we'll get you connected. Um, I'm not sure where you're at today, but I know. That first and foremost, that God loves all of us and he wants to be a father to us all and he wants us all to be united. And so uh, please indicate on this communication card how we can help you guys today um, on this Father's Day. We didn't really get you here to to take anything. You know, we're not here to take your money. We're not here to take uh, anything from you guys that, uh, you know, that we that we, that that we're that we're trying to get out of you. But we're just here to give you something. We want to give you guys a chance to know God. We want to give you guys a chance to have a multi-generational faith that can change lives uh, forever. So thank you again for coming today. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say a prayer. The worship team is going to come up. Uh, They're going to sing a song, and then we're going to pass our baskets, and then I believe after that we're going to have some of our kids come up and sing some songs uh, after we dismiss if you guys want to stick around. So thanks again for coming today, guys. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to just get into your word and see how prevalent persecution was. God, it was all over the place. Uh, But it's incredible to think that persecution is is way higher today because there's a a higher number of Christians choosing to live their lives for you. And as this this world changes, I know that persecution is not going anywhere. And God, I pray that I can learn how to be persistent in that. I pray that I can do that for myself. I pray I can do that for my leadership over this church. But, God, especially I pray that I can do that for my own family because it's going to be really hard to lead a church if I can't lead my own family to be persistent and persevere in their own struggles and and what culture's pushing them to. So, God, I pray that whatever people are at, whatever they need today, they can communicate on that card for their own personal life, for their own families, for their own friends, just how to be persistent and how to find connection with people in the midst of that. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.